But again, it's really good to see you. Um, hope you're having a great, great day today. And uh, just really excited to share with you what the Lord's put on my heart for this season. Um, today, we actually turn our attention to a brand new sermon series. Uh, it's actually going to be a rather lengthy series, a rather in-depth series, uh, probably between 16 and 20 weeks, actually, uh, working through uh, the incredible book of First Peter. Um, there's going to be a few standalone sermon, uh, sermons mixed in uh, from other people besides myself, uh, and we will also take a break uh, from this sermon series uh, during the Christmas and the New Year's season, uh, but really for the rest of the fall and the winter, and at least for the beginning of the spring, uh, we're going to be living, <laughs> living in the book of First Peter uh, as a gathering. You know, we know, we know that the book of First Peter, uh, it's a personal letter written by the Apostle Peter around 62 to 63 AD from Rome. He writes it from Rome to believers that were spread out uh, throughout ancient Asia Minor, which is currently modern day uh, Turkey. And the aim of this letter, right, the, the point of this letter, the purpose of this letter is to help followers of Jesus to flourish amidst the suffering, the trials, and the heartache that they were experiencing and that we experience. In fact, uh, one of the themes that we're going to see the Apostle Peter come back to over and over and over again in this letter is this reality that for, for every Christian, for every follower of Jesus, this world, it's not our home. This world is not our home. And that's why we're going to see Peter call Christians um, exiles or sojourners in this world. This is how he's going to describe the, the Christian community. That for disciples of Jesus, we are actually uh, an, an embassy of God's redeemed people who are living in and sojourning in a strange land that is really not our home. And certainly uh, that reality raises all sorts of questions in regards to how we go about our day-to-day lives, right? Like, if this earth is not my home, if I'm just a visitor here, like an alien here, then how do I face things like suffering and, and loss without giving in to despair? Right? If I'm a sojourner here, how do I weather and withstand all of the storms of life that I regularly face? How do I fight sin if this place isn't my home how do i fight the world how should i view things like politics or how should i view my relationships again how do i live in a world that's not really my home that's what first peter is all about how to navigate through this world as an exile as a sojourner and just sort of as a, as a broad overview, uh, what we're going to clearly see is that Peter does not want us to withdraw ourselves from the world. Actually, he doesn't want us to do that at all. Rather, what Peter wants from us, what he's going to encourage us to do, is to live together as the body of Christ in such a way that we display something of the beauty and the incomparable worth of Jesus to the world that we live in. 
And in that, Peter is going to remind us again and again exactly of who we are who, or whose we are in Christ Jesus. Because that's the only way that any of us can stand firm in this life. Uh, this letter we're going to see over this next season together, it's so personal. Uh, it's, it's so theologically rich. And yet at the same time, it's so down to earth. Uh, so full of the gospel. And so I really can't wait to go through it all uh, with you. And so I can ask you a question, even though you're at home, and maybe you can respond. Um, are you ready? Are you ready to dive in to the book of First Peter? Even if you're not, we're, we're about to go. Uh, well, today we're going to touch on the first two verses of this letter. Um, so if you have a Bible with you, I hope you do today. Turn with me to First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to read verse 2 as well. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, let me just say this before I read the text. In the Greco-Roman world, um, what we see is that letters often began with the author's name, the intended recipient's name, and then some sort of, of greeting. Okay? And certainly we see that in the majority of our New Testament letters as well, right? Because that's the standard. That's how people wrote letters at this time. And so what we're going to see in First Peter is just that. Peter's going to follow this standard. But at the same time, uh, Peter's introduction, what we're going to see, it contains some rich theological truths to give us a sense of where he wants to take us. And so let's read, again, these first two verses together, this letter. And, uh, and then we'll go from there. This is what the Apostle Peter writes. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. All right, well, just two really short verses there, uh, but really so much to cover. And so let's start with the author. We're going to just start with the author today. Again, our our text starts this way, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, and so this is Peter. Peter is our author. And this is the same Peter who was the friend and the disciple of Jesus. He was one of the original 12 disciples uh, who would later, later be called apostles. Okay? And also part of, we know that Peter was also part of Jesus' close inner circle of, of three or four. And so I just want to say this, is that really before you even read this letter, we, we need to remember that, that this man who's writing to us, he intimately knew Jesus he walked with Jesus. He, he lived with Jesus, ate with Jesus. He, he ministered with Jesus. And he actually saw Jesus uh, die on the cross, rise from the dead. Peter actually says that later in this, in this letter. He says that he was a witness, actually, to the sufferings of Jesus. And it's worth the time as well to, to be reminded of, of who Peter was and And also how Jesus changed him. Because before Jesus met Peter, Peter wasn't someone who you would just naturally look at and say, like, wow, like, what a godly man. 
right? Like this guy is uh, apostle material, right? This guy is going to write scripture someday, right? Actually, uh, what we know as we read through the Gospels, uh, the Gospel accounts, that Peter was just a lot like you and me. And I think if we don't get that, if we don't understand that, we're going to miss an incredible point that really underlines this entire letter. This guy, Peter, he's not writing to us from like an ivory tower. Uh, Peter is not some obscure monk who was living out in the desert. Right? He's not some guru that was like sitting under a tree all day long, claiming to be enlightened, right? giving some, some, some insight to us into the truth. Right? This is not someone with some like, uh, like marketing scheme. This is not a political agenda. Right? Peter was just a simple man who was radically changed by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Again, a man a lot like you and me. See, when we first meet Peter, uh, here's what we see. We see this really ordinary, middle-class fisherman who is just working his trade on the Sea of Galilee. You can actually read about this in Luke chapter 5. We see in Luke chapter 5, Jesus shows up on, on the scene. Peter and his fisherman crew uh, had been fishing all night. And unfortunately for them, they had caught nothing. And then Jesus, who was not a fisherman, right? that wasn't his job, it wasn't his trade. Jesus is there and he's teaching this crowd of people. And then he looks at Peter and he says, hey, like, I see you're not, you're not catching anything over there. You haven't caught anything. Why don't you try casting your nets to the other side of the boat? I can't imagine, if I was Peter, I can't imagine what Peter was thinking. This guy, right, he earns his living, right? He earns his living. His job is to fish. And so can you imagine, like, he's like, what are you, you're telling me what to do, but he respects the teacher, he respects this rabbi, and so he does it anyway. And when he does, he casts his nets to the other side of the boat. And when he does that, to everyone's amazement, there are so many fish, so many fish in the nets that they actually, the Bible says that they actually begin to break. And then other boats and other guys have to come over to help bring in this massive load of fish. And for Peter, that's all he needed to see. At that, we know that Peter left everything. He left behind his entire life. He dropped his nets, left his family, started to follow Jesus. And then from there, we see this really amazing up and down journey with Peter. Right? We know that through the gospel accounts, this incredible stories, Peter gets to walk on water because of his faith. But moments later, sinks because of his lack of faith. We see this guy, Peter, he's really the first person to really understand the gospel or at least to publicly declare the gospel. We see, he says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the long-awaited Messiah. He declares that. But then just moments later, just after that, we see Jesus is rebuking Peter for denying that Jesus had to go to the cross, right? Peter is so, so close to Jesus 
that he is actually one of three individuals that Jesus wants with him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he's going to be arrested, right? The day right before he's going to go to the cross. He wants Peter to be there praying, but Peter doesn't even really try, right? We know he just falls asleep. But then that same night, that same night, he fails Jesus in this way, that same night when Jesus is actually arrested, we see Peter, he's so faithful, so loyal, that he's actually ready to physically fight, right? We see he actually pulls out a sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the guys who's, who seized and grabbed Jesus. Again, it's just this back and, and forth with Peter, And perhaps we see this the most in the reality that once Jesus was arrested, although Peter had promised Jesus that he would never leave him, we see that Peter ends up denying Jesus, not just once, but three times. And when he does that, Peter is just broken. He's a broken man. But thankfully, Thankfully, uh, Jesus, we see, doesn't leave Peter there. Jesus' love and Jesus' grace, it shines through. Because in John 21, we see after Jesus had died on the cross and Jesus had risen from the dead, he actually appears to Peter on a beach with the purpose to restore him. And we see in that moment, Jesus and Peter, their relationship is is reconciled by Jesus asking Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you truly love me? And Peter, we see, responds emphatically three times, Lord, you know, Lord, you know, you know everything. Lord, you know that I love you. If you've read through the Gospels at all and familiarize yourself with Peter, even just a little bit, maybe you just even read one of, one of the stories where Peter's involved, it's just really hard not to like Peter. And I, and I think that's because he's so much like us. He's so relatable, right? At least for me, he's just so relatable. He's passionate, so passionate one moment, and then he's sinking in another moment. He's declaring the truth of who Jesus is, And then he's denying Jesus with his words and actions. He's courageous, so bold at moments. And then he's a coward at other times. Right? He really does. Peter really does seem to try his best. But then he fails over and over and over again. But what's so amazing to me is that while that's true, while Peter's journey was so up and down, Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're just the type of person that I want to work with. You're just the type of person. You're exactly the type of person that I'm looking for to follow me. And so how about I make you, Peter, imperfect person, regular guy, how about I make you an apostle? How about I make you one of the leaders of my church? And so church family, I think we just start with that truth that this should be an incredible comfort to us. Just the reality that Peter is the one who wrote this letter. Because I think there's just too many of us who can fall in this trap of thinking things like, 
you know, Jesus could never use me in a meaningful way. Right? I've failed. I've just failed too many times. I've, I've gone back too many times on my promises. Right? I've had to ask for forgiveness over and over and over again. Right? There's just too much sin in my past, in my life, that sticks to me too closely. And the moment that we think that, the moment that our enemy comes in and discourages us with who we once were, what we've done, in walks Peter. An amazing example of what God's grace can do to an ordinary man or an ordinary woman who is seeking Jesus by faith. If God can use Peter, then he can use you. If he changed Peter, then he can change you. And I think one of the most interesting things Jesus ever said to Peter is found in Luke chapter 22, verse 32. He says this. He's speaking to Peter. He says, I have prayed for you that your, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Do you see that? Jesus says, I've prayed. I've prayed for you that you won't fail. But when you turn again, meaning when you turn back to me, meaning you're going to fail, you're going to turn away from me. But when you turn back to me, I know that you're going to turn back to me. What do I want you to do when you do that? Strengthen your brothers, he says. Strengthen your brothers. And I believe that's exactly what Peter is attempting to do for us in this letter. Peter failed and he fell. But he found grace and new strength in Jesus. And now he writes to people who will fall and who fail. Why? To strengthen us in the faith as a person who had been transformed by the amazing grace of God. And so here's the point again. We're just start this whole entire journey together with. Here's the point. Peter is not some random, shady, mystic or guru disconnected from the cares of life. He was a simple man who knew difficulty, who knew failure. He even denied Jesus. He lacked faith at times. But he had been radically transformed by God's grace in Jesus. And he was, in the end, he was faithful. Faithful to the very end of his life. Who actually died, we know from church history. Died for his faith in Jesus. A man who was, who was told at the end of his life, that he was going to be crucified. A man who requested to be crucified upside down, actually, because he didn't want the honor and the dignity of dying in the same way as his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? All that to be said, right? we can trust Peter and his words. Something happened to him that changed his life. He met Jesus, and he wants the same for us. And so that's our author. Now, uh, whom is he writing to? This is the Apostle Peter. Who is he writing to? Well, 
Look at how he describes his audience. He says this, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. We know that all the names there, they're they're names of, of Roman provinces in Asia Minor, which again, what we said in the beginning is modern day Turkey, this area a little bit smaller than the size of California. Um, but the people here, we know, um, they're, they're likely former Gentiles, meaning they weren't of Jewish background. And that's significant. You're going to see that in a minute. Right? These people he's writing to, uh, they were Gentiles who became Christians, which is the majority of our stories, right? The vast majority of followers of Jesus these days don't come from Jewish background. So we're just like these people. And we get evidence of this, that these people were former Gentiles throughout this letter. Right? For example, verse 18 of chapter 1, he tells them, you were ransomed from the, key word here, futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And we know that, that Peter, he actually never refers to Jewish practices or ways as futile. But he does describe pagan ways or Gentile ways in that way. Or what about in chapter 4, verse 3? He says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Again, he never talks to people who were formerly Jewish in that way. We see that through all of his letters. He's saying here, you used to think this way. You used to value these things. You used to live in accordance with the world's values as Gentiles, because you are Gentiles, but you don't do that anymore. So once again, these are likely Gentile Christians. And there's pretty solid evidence that we have as well that these, um, that these are people who became Christians in Rome. They, they converted in Rome. But then they were deported or removed out of Rome, or from Rome, for being Christian, right? To, they were persecuted, actually. And so they were moved to other uh, parts of the, emp- uh, the empire, right? To other Roman colonies in the mid-first century, right? Or, or maybe these are people who, before they were asked to leave or beho- before the persecution came, right? They actually just fled themselves. They chose to leave, um, it could be a combination of the two. People who were either kicked out because they were forced to or who left before the persecution began. Uh, we can't be exactly sure. But Peter, who is writing from Rome, he knew these people. Gentile Christian believers, okay? They're believers, former Gentiles, right? Converted in Rome, and now they're all throughout Asia Minor. And notice he calls them elect exiles of the dispersion. And there are three terms there that we really need to define to understand this audience. We'll do that backwards, starting with that word dispersion. The word dispersion, it comes from the word diaspora, diaspora. And it's a word that was first used to describe the spreading of the Jewish people after the destruction of the temple, right? And their exile into Babylon. You can read about this in the Old Testament, particularly with like a person like Daniel, okay? But remember, right, these people that, that Peter is writing to, they're not Jews, right? They're Gentile Christians. That's important to note because it gives us clear inference here, right, which, which Peter's also going to give us explicitly throughout the rest of this letter, 
And the inference is this, that, that Jesus' church is really the new Israel. The church is God's new chosen people. He uses the word dispersion, diaspora, a Jewish word. Now he attaches that to Gentile Christians. And what Peter, again, he's saying here by giving them this designation is that they are of, that they are of the dispersion is that like the Jewish people of old, now Jesus' church, the true Israel, has been dispersed in the world or throughout the world as exiles. Peter wants Christians, you and I, to understand themselves in relation to the world that we live in, that we are exiles here, right? That's why he calls them very, very specifically here, he calls them exiles in verse 1. And literally, we know that that word, it means foreigner. Okay, a foreigner. An exile is a foreigner. That term, um, in the first century, it was designated to a person um, who wasn't a, a citizen where they lived. And therefore, they had a different set of values, practices, um, and customs to their host culture. A lot of us here in Seoul, we can relate to this. But oftentimes, because they were foreigners or outsiders, um, exiles, um, they were people, the the host country or those, you know, the people who were the citizens, they were very suspicious of them. They looked, they were looked down, they looked down upon exiles and they treat, they were treated unkindly. And Peter uh, says that really he's saying here, that's the Christian life. That we are spiritual exiles journeying through this life, through this world, on our way back to our true home. In other words, in Christ, we are not primarily citizens of Korea or of the United States or of Canada or wherever you may be from. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. That in Christ, our primary point of reference for leadership is not our president, right? But the King of Kings and the Lord of all lords. Peter is saying that in Christ, our true home is not soul. It's not soul. Our home is not soul. Sure, we love this city. We care for this city. But our true home is the new heavens and the new earth that is to come. We are all just visitors here. Foreigners, exiles, on our way to our true home with the Lord. And that also means that in Christ, our primary people, let's call them, are not just our biological family or or our friends here, but God's new people in Jesus with whom we are in exile with. Those are our people, the people that we're in exile with. This world, again, it's not our home. We are exiles here. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 also says that we are strangers and exiles. We're awaiting a city that is being prepared for us by God. And because of that reality, we know that our ultimate hope is not anchored here, but it is anchored there with him. Now, Uh, Let's just understand um, what we're not saying from the very outset here is that we don't care about this world, right? I already said we care about our city. We love our city. We're called to do that, right? That's not what Peter is saying by calling us exiles. 
We do, again, we care about what happens here on earth. But what he is saying, again, is that this world is not our primary reference point. And that means that our primary, again, our primary hope, where we find meaning, where we find our purpose, it cannot and is not found here. We don't find our source of joy, peace, or our sense of identity in this world. Again, and we'll just say this over and over again throughout this sermon series. This is not our home. And so we do not build our lives here. We don't plant ourselves here because we are sojourners. And that should change everything about your perspective and how you live your life while you're here. And Peter wants to help us with that. So again, we know that the Apostle Peter, he wrote this. And he wrote this letter to a radically new people, to exiles, to foreigners, sojourners in this world, on our way home. And now, how does he start? What does he tell them? And we're going to see this in verse 2. And verse 2 really serves as a basis for everything that is to follow in Peter's letter. And certainly we're going to unpack uh, this more and more in the weeks to come. But right from the very beginning, he wants us to know. And listen, if you hear nothing else today, uh, hear this. He wants us to know that being a follower of Jesus, being a Christian, is no small matter. In fact, becoming a Christian is the most profound thing that could ever happen to a human being. It's, it's actually supernatural. It's not natural at all. It's supernatural. And it affects every single corner of our lives. So look at what Peter says to these believers, these exiles. He encourages them, actually, by reminding them of three realities for the Christian. We're going to go through these. Three realities for the Christian. We've we got to know these. We've got to know these if we want to We want to live in this world well for the kingdom, our true kingdom. So here's what he says first. First, he tells them this, and he tells us this. Number one, that every Christian is chosen by God the Father. Every Christian is chosen by God the Father. Look again back at our text. He says this, to those who are elect exiles, then look at verse two, according to the foreknowledge of, of God, the Father. Um, I think this point, it really needs time, uh, even before this, uh, even beyond this sermon, to sink in. But Peter is reminding us here of our, of our privileged and secure position as God's sovereign, gracious, eternally chosen people. He says, Christians are people who are saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Do you see that? Right? I didn't say that. Peter wrote that. Okay? He said that. Now, the word foreknowledge, okay, um, it does not just mean that God foreknew uh, people who would trust him as Lord and Savior. Right? As though he, he sort of like looked through the corridors of time, like peered through the heavenlies and was like, okay, 
um, Susie's going to trust me, Billy's going to trust me, and so on and so forth, right? It's not exactly what he's saying. Um, Because this doesn't say the foreknowledge of faith, of our faith. It says the foreknowledge of God. And so what this is specifically talking about, really, um, is the reality that God chose to set his affections upon his people before the foundations of the earth. That's foreknowledge. And we see this similarly in Ephesians chapter 1, right? The apostle Paul writes the book of Ephesians or the letter to the church at Ephesus. I'm going to paraphrase this in Ephesians 1, but he says something like this. He says, praise be to the Lord for he, the Lord, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ according, listen, to the purpose of his will. In other words, not our will, his will. That's the sense of foreknowledge here. It's actually very close, that word foreknowledge, very closely related to the word choose or elect, which is why, I think, Peter calls followers of Jesus, specifically elect exiles, here in verse 1. And I know, some of you might even be like squirming in your seats right now, um, because I know that this is sort of a, a, a debatable topic amongst Christians, Right? Does God choose us, or do we choose him? Right? Which one happens first? How does this all work? You know, but please understand, please understand my heart here. I'm just trying to wrestle with this text and tell you what I believe that Peter is clearly trying to say and is saying here. Peter says, he calls us elect exiles who God foreknew. And we have to wrestle with what that means. But I think that this this actually, this truth, it's actually such good news. Because what I see uh, in the scriptures over and over and over again is there is the reality that within human beings that there is no good. There is nothing good. That if it's up to you and me, right, in our inherited sinful condition, we never choose, never will choose the things of God and the ways of God, let alone God himself. We always, on the other hand, choose ourselves, our ways, our will, our hopes, our dreams. We always go that way. And so what that means is that we actually need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You know, when I I became a Christian truly started to follow Jesus, um, I was 19 years old. You know, and at that time, um, I felt like I did that on my own. Like, I accomplished it. I did. Um, I had read things, uh, talked to people, asked questions, and actually, I prayed. I, I was the one who prayed. I prayed. I looked up at my ceiling. Right? I'm a 19-year-old kid. Look up at my ceiling, because, of course, that's where God is. He's up there somewhere, so I looked up at my ceiling. And I asked God, I asked him, save me. Please save me. I want to give, I need you to fix me. And I want to give my life to you. I did that. But you know, the older that I, I got, and the further I got from that 
specific moment. And still now, like the further I get from, from that time, the more I realize and recognize that it was really all God's work all along. That nothing about my story was a coincidence. That he, God, the living God, that he was actually the one moving in my life and orchestrating things and, and leading me to himself the entire time. Right? Sure, don't, don't mis, mishear me this morning. Don't hear me wrong. I did. I cried out to God. I made the choice to do that. But even underneath that very moment, God was there all along, drawing me to himself. And so again, I'm not looking for a debate this morning, who chose who first. But we do have to at least acknowledge and wrestle with the reality that Peter calls us elect and tells us that God the Father foreknew us. And let me at least say this last point about this as well. You know what's so awesome about that? So many things. But you know what's amazing, awesome to me about this? If God really does work this way in salvation, it means that my salvation, it means that your salvation, all of it is entirely, entirely the work of the unmerited grace of God. And that reality will humble you. And it humbles me. I did nothing to deserve this. Right? Which means that God is the one. He alone. He gets all of the glory. He gets all of the honor. And all of the praise for the transformation of lives. Which I think sounds right. Which I think he deserves. And so Peter starts there. With the truth that we are set apart and known by the Father, that though we are exiles, sojourners in this world, who might even be rejected by the world that we live in, that we have a steadfast anchor for our souls, knowing that we have been seen by God. And because of that, we are secure in him. Salvation is from and of the Lord And therefore, while we're on this journey, we are safe in his arms. Well, not only do we see in this intro that every Christian is chosen by God the Father, but also we see that, number two, every Christian is set apart by the Holy Spirit. Number two, every Christian is set apart by the Holy Spirit. Again, Peter writes this. He says, to those who are elect exiles... According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and here it is, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification literally means to set apart, to set apart. And what we see in the New Testament, um, it's really used two primary ways, is that at times it has the meaning of sort of a once and for all salvation, that, that once you put your faith in Jesus, you are decisively set apart. But then in other places, sanctification, it refers to the gradual process of growth in the Christian life. It has to do with the the progression, if you will, of becoming more and more like Jesus. 
But the point Peter has here is that it is the Holy Spirit who sets God's people apart, who seals their salvation and who empowers them for life. And what this also means uh, is that it's the, the spirit in us. It's a sign of a person's salvation. We talked about this actually in our series focusing on the church, Ecclesia, when we talked about being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, but how do we know? I think the, the, the important thing here is to really sort of wrestle with the question, like how do we know that we have the Holy Spirit in us, who is sanctifying in a, uh, us, who is helping us to become more like Jesus? How do we know if we have the Spirit of the living God in us? Well, what we do, what we can do, is look for evidence of the Spirit and his work in our lives. Right? We could start by asking ourselves questions like, I know this sounds simple, but do I, right, really in my heart of hearts, do I actually want a relationship with Jesus? Uh, do I treasure Jesus? Right? Do I see my, my Lord, my Savior, do I see Jesus as infinite worth? Uh, do I recognize sin in my life? And am I struggling against that sin? Does it bother me? Does it convict me? Or how about this? Do I love Jesus' people? Right? Do I love the church? Do I love the other exiles around me? Do I hunger for the word of God? Do I have a desire to pray? Because praying is just, it just means I get the opportunity to talk with my creator how about this? Do I desire within me? Do I desire? Do I care about other people who don't know Jesus? Do I care about them coming to faith? If the answer to those questions is yes, right, that's the Spirit of God within you. Because it's the Holy Spirit who convicts. It's the Spirit of God who reveals. It's the Spirit who gives us a new heart and who leads us towards the things of God. We don't naturally adore Jesus and the things of the kingdom of God. And so Peter wants us to know this. Again, these desires are not natural, but supernatural realities that are given by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is helping us, actually. So good. So good that the Holy Spirit is helping us work out our salvation. We don't have to do it alone. It's not up to us. And knowing that, knowing that truth should give us strength, though we are in exile, though we are on this sojourn. And then finally, Peter reminds us our third reality for the Christian. Number three, every Christian is forgiven to belong to God by Jesus. Every Christian is forgiven to belong to God by Jesus. I think it's important to understand um, that the Holy Spirit doesn't call people to some generic spirituality when he calls. He, what, he, what he's calling to you actually to is the person of Jesus Christ himself. Peter says here, all this foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for what? What does he say? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Sounds a little bit confusing. Those are kind of some weird words there. Not that hard to understand, actually. 
Um, we don't have a ton of time to go through this, but this verse here, that phrase, is likely an echo of Exodus chapter 24, where Moses is inaugurating the covenant, which, what's known to us now is the Mosaic covenant with God's people after they had come out of Egypt, after they had come out of slavery. We know that at that time, sacrifices are, are made, sacrifices are sprinkled, the people promised to obey the Lord, and all of that, all of those occurrences, all of it pointed forward to the establishment of the new covenant of God in Jesus. Because in Jesus, God's people would be forgiven of all of their sins, past, present, and future. And that forgiveness makes way for a relationship of personal and profound belonging with the living God of the universe through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's really what's being communicated here by Peter to us. For obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood, this is actually just language of belonging, okay? Um, Language of obedience. Listen, language of obedience points to belonging. Why? Because we obey every time. We obey the one to whom we belong. You and I obey the one to whom we belong. 1 John 2.3 says this, by this we know that we have come to know him. By this we have come to know him or belong to him. If we what? Keep his commandments. And we don't keep his commandments to belong. We keep his commandments because we belong. There's a huge difference there. So what Peter is saying here, what he wants us to see is that you and I, we're not just engineers, businessmen, students, teachers, cafe owners, homemakers, or CEOs. We are chosen by the Father. We are set apart by the Holy Spirit. And we are forgiven to belong personally and profoundly to God by Jesus Christ. And what all this means, see how this all comes together. What all this means is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all at work together in our salvation. Don't miss that. It's the work of of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, all together who's working out our salvation. Peter begins his letter. This is just his introduction. He begins his letter here. Why? Because standing firm begins here. Peter starts, he begins by reframing the world and how we see ourselves in it. Because flourishing in this world as an exile, it starts there. You want to make it through this life? You want to make it through this life? It's really hard, right? Especially this season, right? It's been so hard for so many people. So many ups and downs. So many difficulties. Do you want to make it through this life? You need to know that it's Jesus that transforms lives. Start there. It's Jesus that transforms lives. He changed Peter's, he changed my life, and he can change yours. Know that Jesus has made a radical new people, 
exiles, sojourners who are on our way home, which means that our ultimate hope is not anchored here, but there with him. And finally, know that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus today, you have a profound new identity. You are chosen by God the Father. You are set apart by the Holy Spirit. And you are forgiven to belong to Jesus. And all of this, all of this is by grace so that we can be at peace. That's what you need to know to live in a world that's not your home. Peter ends his introduction, and I want to end today with these words to you as well. This is what he says. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's what I want to say to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, church family. May you come to know more and more of the good news of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. May you know that there is actually life. There's life in the name of Jesus. Not because we deserve it. We don't. Not because we clean ourselves up. We can't. But because of his grace and his grace alone. And may that grace give you peace. Now and forever. In abundance. Let me pray for you.